0: You're listening to a message from Whitefields Community Church in Northern Colorado. For more information and audio content, visit us at whitefieldschurch.com. 2 Kings chapters 9 and 10, let's pray. Lord, as we come to your word, we ask, give us receptive hearts. Lord, may the seed of your word be planted in your hearts. Lord, may you water those seeds. And Lord, may they bear up much, much good fruit for your glory and for our good, for the good of others through us that you want to do. Lord, we ask that you would do that radical change at the root of who we are as we study your word today. And your spirit works within us. And we pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Hey, have you guys ever met somebody who like everything they did, they did it with like 110%, right? They did it passionately. They did it with their whole heart. No matter how small, no matter how menial the task, they gave it 110% all the time. I've known a few people like that in my life. I was remembering that a few years ago, I got to speak on the stage of a big conference. It was a big pastor's conference, but I wasn't asked to be like a, a teacher at the conference. I was just asked to give an announcement. So I got to go on the stage to give this announcement. But while I was backstage waiting to go on, to give the announcement. This guy comes up to me, and he grabs me by the shoulders, and he looks me in the eye, and he tells me, you are never going to get this moment back. So go out there and give it everything you have. And I was like... I don't think this guy realizes that I'm just the announcement guy. But you know what? I am going to go out there, and I am going to give it everything I've got. I'm going to, this is going to be the best announcement these people have ever heard in their lives. Right? Like, because I love that attitude. If you're going to do something, you might as well do it wholeheartedly. You know, in the book of Ecclesiastes, chapter 9, it says this, Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all your might, for there is no work or thought or knowledge or wisdom in Sheol to which you are going. I love that idea. In other words, it's saying this. Listen, you've got one life to live. You've got a small window of time while you're here on earth. Don't waste it with timidity. Don't waste it with half measures and being half-hearted. Well, today, we're going to meet a person who everything he did, he did 110%. We've got a name for people like that. We call them radicals. You know the word radical. It comes from the Latin word radix, which literally means root, It means root. So to be radical, to the word radical, it refers to the root, the core, the heart of who you are at very center. So in 2 Kings chapters 9 and 10, we meet a man named Jehu. And this man was a true radical. He was fervent. He was ferocious. And God used Jehu to bring about a radical, sweeping change in both Israel and Judah. And yet, As radical as Jehu was, there was still something he lacked. That's what we're going to see in our study today. The title of today's message is The Radical Change. And what we're going to see as we study the life of King Jehu is this. We're going to see that it is possible to do the right things for the wrong reasons, but... Jesus is able to bring about the radical change that we need. Every week, I give you a sentence. That sentence summarizes the core idea of what this passage and what this message is about, and then we use that sentence as our outline and our guide for studying the passage. So if you want to write that down, if you want to take a photo of it, if you want to memorize it, it'll be great. And later on today, somebody's going to ask you what they talk about at church, and you're going to tell them this. It's possible to do the right things for the wrong reasons, but Jesus is able to bring about the radical change that we need. So let's work through that sentence as we study this passage. It's possible to do the right things. Let's talk about doing the right things. 2 Kings chapter 9 begins with these words. It says this in chapter 9, verse 1. Then Elisha the prophet called one of the sons of the prophets and said to him, Tie up your garments and take this flask of oil in your hand and go to Ramoth-Gilead. And when you arrive, look there for Jehu, the son of Jehoshaphat, son of Nimshi, and go in and have him rise from among his fellows and lead him to an inner chamber. Then take the flask of oil and pour it on his head and say, Thus says the Lord, I anoint you king of Israel. Then open the door and flee. Do not linger. So he's like, okay, here's what I want you to do. You can go find this guy. You can dump some oil on his head. Tell him, you're the king now, and you're going to run away as fast as you can. Well, let me give you a little bit of context for what's going on here. At this time, remember, the nation of Israel was divided into two kingdoms. Israel was the northern kingdom, and Judah was the southern kingdom. They had two different kings during this time. They were separate nations, although they were one people the king the northern kingdom of israel They had a king whose name was Joram. Now, Joram, in some places, is also called Jehoram. It's just different spellings, different pronunciations of the same name. But it's the same person. And Joram was the king of Israel, and he was also the son of King Ahab. Now, that's important because King Ahab, we read about him in 1 Kings, at the end of 1 Kings, when we talked about the prophet Elijah. Well, King Ahab was the most wicked, the most evil king who ever reigned over Israel, And what made him so wicked is that he introduced a form of pagan worship. He worshipped the pagan god Baal. And the pagan god Baal was worshipped by human mutilation, by the shedding of human blood, and by human sacrifices, and most specifically, the sacrificing of human blood babies, human children, on the altar to the pagan god Baal. And and Ahab had a wife named Jezebel who was equally as evil as he was. And together, they killed the prophets of God. They tried to eradicate the worship of Yahweh out of Israel completely. And because of Ahab's wickedness, and because of all the atrocities that Ahab and Jezebel committed, in 1 Kings chapter 21, God had promised that he would bring judgment upon the house of Ahab. Now listen, part of what makes God good, when we say that God is good, part of God's goodness is that he is not only a God of love and and mercy and grace. Part of God's goodness is that he is a God of justice. He's a God of justice. God would not be good if he winked at evil. Instead, he's a God of justice. Now, on the one hand, the Bible tells us that there will be a judgment for our souls, right? The Bible says this, that the soul that sins shall surely die. That's kind of hard to say. It's like Sally sells seashells at the seashore, right? The soul that sins will surely die. But sometimes we also see in both the Old Testament and the New Testament that God also carries out judgment in people's lives here on earth. We could call that judgment temporal judgment. Now here in 2 Kings chapters 9 and 10, what we're going to see is this. Jehu, this guy who's just now being anointed the next king, he is going to be God's instrument of judgment upon the house of Ahab. And God is going to use Jehu to also get rid of the worship of Baal in Israel. It's going to be a radical change that's going to take place in Israel through this man Jehu. Now know this. King Ahab and his son, King Joram, they belong to a royal dynasty that has ruled for generations at this point in Israel. That dynasty is called the House of Omri. They belong to the House of Omri. And um, even though God had promised back in 1 Kings chapter 21, that he was going to judge this dynasty and overthrow this dynasty, replace it with another one. Here in 2 Kings chapter 9, even though that promise was given back in 1 Kings 21, here we are in 2 Kings chapter 9, and Joram who's of the dynasty of Omri, is still on the throne. And you wonder, why is that? Why is it that this man's still on the throne when God promised to overthrow this dynasty? Well, there's a good reason for it. And the reason is this. Because God is extremely, surprisingly, scandalously patient and long-suffering. And God wanted to give Joram every possible opportunity to repent and turn to him, to turn from his sins and turn to God and receive mercy and grace instead of judgment, but instead of repenting what we've seen here in 2 Kings is that Joram continued in the same evil ways as his father Ahab. And so now the time has finally come for God to raise up a new king, Jehu, who's going to overthrow that dynasty, and he's going to bring about a radical change in Israel. So here in the opening verses of chapter 9, let me just tell you what's going on. And, And we're going to go Kind of fast, because we're covering a lot of ground. So it'd be good if you have your Bible in front of you, and you can look at it as I kind of summarize what's happening. So Elisha tells one of his prophets in training. When you read there about the sons of the prophets, the sons of the prophets were not literal, you know, descendants of prophets. What they were is they were prophets in training. They were student prophets. They were training in Bible college, if you will, to become prophets. So he tells one of his, you know, intern prophets, he says, I want you to do this. Take a flask of oil and go find this guy named Jehu. And I want you to anoint him as the next king of Israel. Now, there are three types of people in ancient Israel who were anointed with oil. Those were prophets, priests, and kings. Prophets, priests, and kings were all anointed with oil when they began their ministries. And the reason that was done, the oil was a symbol that God was empowering them, anointing them to, uh, to carry out the ministry and the mission that he had upon their lives in those roles as prophets, priests, and kings. But this is probably the strangest anointing ceremony that we ever read about in the entire Bible. Here's what happens in verses 4 through 10. This young prophet, he goes to the house where Jehu is staying. He knocks on the door. They answer the door, and they're like, hi, who are you? And he says, um, nobody. I'm just looking for this guy, Jehu. Jehu. Is Jehu around? And they say, yeah, he's over there. So he goes up to Jehu, He takes this oil out, he dumps it on his head, and he says, God has anointed you king over Israel, and he has called you to strike down the house of Ahab and to avenge the blood that was shed by Ahab and Jezebel. And then the prophet turns around and he runs as fast as he can out the door and he just keeps running. Now you wonder, why is this guy running? Here's why. Because there already is a king in Israel. Understand that by anointing a new person as king of Israel and telling him that he's called by God to execute the current king of Israel, well, that would be a dangerous mission because that would absolutely be seen as an act of treason. So he's he's running for his life, lest anyone capture him for committing this act of treason. Even though, of course, it's what God told him to do. Well, after being anointed as king, you can imagine Jehu comes out of this room. He's just got oil dripping down his face. And the people are like, what just happened? And he's like, well, he just told me that I'm king. And they're like, well, all hail the king, right? So here he is. He's king. He's been given this task to avenge the blood that was shed by Ahab and Jezebel. And we see in verse 14 that Jehu didn't hesitate at all. He got to work right away, immediately. And the first person he's going to go after is Joram, the current king. Guys, just a warning. The rest of this section, it's kind of like the Terminator, right? He's just going around terminating people. That's what this is going to be. We read in verse 15 that Joram, the The current king of Israel was staying in Jezreel at this time. Now, Jezreel is kind of in the middle of of the northern kingdom of Israel, and it is the place where the kings and queens of Israel had their royal palace, their royal residence. So here's Joram. He's at the royal palace there in Jezreel, and he had been injured at this time, we read, in a battle with the Syrians. But there's something really interesting that we read in verse 16. We read in verse 16 that Joram, king of Israel, was there in Jezreel, but there was somebody else who was also there. King Ahaziah, who is the king of Judah, right? So both the king of Israel and the king of Judah are hanging out together at the palace in Jezreel at this very moment. The two of them are together. Now you wonder, what are these guys doing together? Very good explanation. You got to understand, Ahaziah, king of Judah, and Joram, king of Israel, were second cousins. They are related to each other. We're told that in 2 Kings chapter 8, verse 26, that Ahaziah, king of Judah, was the grandson of King Ahab. That made him and Joram second cousins. So they're related. They're family. And remember, that means he's also a descendant of King Ahab. And what has Jehu been called to do? to eradicate the descendants of King Ahab. That's going to be important as we go on. OK, verses 17 through 19, here's what happens. Remember, Jehu's on his way to the palace to meet these guys. And it says that the watchmen who are there guarding the royal palace, they're you know looking with their binoculars or whatever, and they're seeing somebody approach the palace, this entourage of people. You know, you can imagine kicking up dust in the air. They can see them from afar off. And they start wondering. Is this entourage, is this group of people coming? Are they coming in peace, or are they coming to attack us? And in verse 20, I love this. It says, one of the watchmen said, well, it must be Jehu, because look at how he's driving. It says, his driving is like the driving of Jehu, son of Nimshi, for he drives furiously. Even before they were able to see who it was, they said, yeah, that's probably Jehu. Look at how he's driving. That guy drives crazy, right? You probably know people who drive like this. Maybe some of you are people who drive like this, right? You can tell, oh yeah, I know who that is. That guy drives furiously. So this tells you something about Jehu, by the way, also. We're going to see this as we go through this passage. They, they recognize it must be him because he's driving furiously. He's everything that Jehu does, he does it ferociously. He gives 110%. He does it with energy and zeal. So here in verse 21, here's what happens. Joram, king of Israel, and Ahaziah, king of Judah, they say to the watchman, they say, well, we know Jehu, right? He's the commander of the army of Israel. So we're just going to go out and meet him. And we'll just ask him, hey, what are you doing? Why are you coming here? What's the, what's the deal? So they get in their chariots, and they ride out, and they meet Jehu on the road, outside the, outside the palace, on the road to the palace. They meet up with him. And verse 22, when they get to Jehu, Joram asks him, do you come in peace, Jehu? And Jehu says, How can there be peace as long as the idolatry and sorcery of your mother Jezebel continues here in Israel? So in verse 23, Joram realizes Jehu has come here to to assassinate them. So he says to Ahaziah, his second cousin, He says, Treachery, O Ahaziah. And they turn around their chariots and they start to try and race away from Joram because they know that he's come to, or sorry, from Jehu because they know that he's come to kill them. Well, verse 24, Jehu drew his bow with all of his strength and he uh, shot Joram between the shoulders and the arrow pierced his heart and he died. Okay, so now this guy's done. Look at verse 25. It says that Jehu told his men to take Joram's body and throw it in the field of Naboth. Now, why is that important? Because if you remember back to 1 Kings chapter 21, One of the things that was kind of the last straw when God said, okay, that's it. I'm done. I'm judging the the family of Ahab. Here's what Ahab did. He murdered a man and stole his property, his ancestral property. And so this is kind of showing that this was done in judgment for the wicked deeds of Ahab. So they take his body and they put it on the land of Naboth. Well, after executing Joram, Jehu also then executes Ahaziah, king of Judah, in verse 27. So get this, in one day, Jehu has killed both the king of Israel and the king of Judah in one day. Now, starting in verse 30, Jehu turns his attention towards Jezebel, the queen and the wife of King Ahab. Now, Jezebel, understand, we saw in 1 Kings, she was just as wicked as King Ahab, and in some instances, even more wicked than King Ahab. Her death as a judgment from God was prophesied many years before this, but as we see here, at this point, she was still alive. Well, Jehu, he comes to the entrance of the royal palace there in Jezreel. Now understand, he's standing outside, and she's inside. This is a fortified you know, palace there. And he, and she leans out the window. Jezebel comes to the window. She leans out the window, and she says to him, is it peace, you Zimri, murderer of your master? And why does she call him Zimri? Here's why. Because Zimri was the name of a man who had assassinated King Basha, king of Israel, in 1 Kings chapter 16. So by calling uh, Jehu Zimri, that'd be like if we said to somebody, is that you, Judas? Is that you, Benedict Arnold? In other words, she's calling him a despicable traitor. Well, understand, Jehu is outside the palace, and Jezebel is inside this fortified palace. So what does Jehu do? It says in verse 32, he shouted up to the servants who were inside the palace, and he asked them, are any of you with me? And it says there that two of Jezebel's own servants grabbed her, and they threw her down. They threw her out of the window, and she hit the ground, and she died. And it says that her blood splattered on the ground, and the, her body was trampled under the horse's. So there's Jezebel's body lying on the ground in the middle of the street. And what does Jehu do? He goes and has dinner. That's just what he did. I'm not making it up. It says, he he said, okay, let's go eat dinner. So they go and they leave her body lying in the street. They go and they eat dinner. And then they say, they come back and say, okay, well, we should collect her body, give her a proper burial. But by the time they return, they found that dogs had eaten her body and all that was left was her skull, the soles of her feet, and the palms of her hands. Now, the reason we're told this gory detail is because Elijah the prophet had prophesied in 1 Kings chapter 21, that Jezebel would die in Jezreel and dogs would eat her flesh. So here we have the fulfillment of that prophecy from 1 Kings 21. All right, so far, let's just take stock. We've reached the end of chapter nine. What would we say about this man, Jehu? Well, I think we would say two things. On the one hand, we would say that he has obeyed what God told him to do. And the other thing we would say is that he has done it Energetically and enthusiastically, he's done quite a bit in a very short amount of time. So, so far, he's doing all the right things, right? He's doing all the right things. Let's continue in chapter 10. In chapter 10, Jehu continues this mission to bring about radical change in Israel. It says in chapter 10, verse 1, that Ahab had 70 sons who lived in Samaria. Remember, they had multiple wives oftentimes at this time. So that's how you're able to have this many sons. Well, Jehu sent letters to them. This is interesting. He's like, send some letters to them, telling them, hey, guys, it's Jehu here. I'm coming for you. And when I get there, God has told me to carry out judgment against the house of Ahab. So I just want to give you a heads up that I'm coming. I'm going to take you out. If any of you want to fight against me, that's fine. I'm just giving you a heads up, kind of a a gentleman's warning that I'm coming to get you. And so uh, here's what they do, though. They get this letter, and they're like, okay, Jehu's coming, and he's coming for us. What are we going to do? Well, it says there in verse 4 that these 70 sons of Ahab, they get these letters, and they're like, this Jehu guy is crazy, right? Like, he is crazy. He just killed two kings uh, in one day, and we don't stand a chance, first of all. And and what's the point of fighting a losing battle? They knew that God had called for the judgment of their family, and so instead of fighting against Jehu, check this out, they literally surrendered their lives. They said, you know what? We're not going to fight just, we surrender our lives. And the nobles executed these 70 sons and sent their heads in baskets to Jehu as proof. So that was, that was easy. Let's keep going. Verses 12 through 14. Jehu finds some more relatives. These are the relatives of Ahaziah, who, remember, was the grandson of Ahab, and he executes them too. So up until this point, Jehu has done exactly what God told him to do. But now, starting in verse 15, This is where we're going to start to see the second part of our sentence that we're studying through, remember? And that's this. It's possible to do the right things, but for the wrong reasons. It's possible to do the right things, but for the wrong reasons. Let's see how that played out in Jehu's life. In chapter 10, verse 15, we read that Jehonadab, the son of Rechab, came to meet Jehu. Now, who is this guy? What's this all about? Well, we actually know from Jewish history and from the book of Jeremiah, chapter 35, that Jehonadab was the founder of a religious reform movement in Israel, which was called the Rechabites. That's what they were called. So in other words, we've got this guy, Jehonadab. He's the leader of this religious reform movement, and he hears about Jehu and all the things that Jehu is doing, carrying out the judgment of God on the household of Ahab, And so he goes out to meet him to see if they might have anything in common and they can work together. But I want you to look at what Jehu says to Jehonadab in verse 16. It's really telling. Here's what he says. He said to him, come with me and see my zeal for the Lord. Come with me and see my zeal for the Lord. So he had him ride in his chariot. It's kind of a weird thing to say, right? Hey, Want to see how awesome I am? Hey, let me show you how how zealous I am for God. Watch this, and he's going to take him. Now, listen. It's very clear from this that Jehu wants to impress Jehonadab. He wants to show off how zealous he is for the Lord. It seems that Jehu is very hungry for the approval of this man, Jehonadab. And that's not surprising because Jehu probably, as a new king, he probably wants to win the support of this respected religious leader. Now, perhaps Jehu thought that if he could impress Jehonadab, this leader of this reform movement, then the religious people in Israel would be more likely to follow him and take his side. The point is this, though. It's clear that Jehu is not only interested in doing these things he's doing for God's glory— he also very much cares about his image, about what other people think about him. He wants people to see that he's zealous. He wants people to think that he is zealous. So here's what happens. Jehu, now he's going to turn his attention to eradicating the worship of the god Baal, the pagan god Baal, from Israel. In verse 18, we read that Jehu calls together this big Baal-worshiping convention. And he says something interesting. He says, hey, he sends out a letter to everybody in Israel. Hey, if you guys thought that Ahab liked, liked Baal, you haven't seen nothing yet. I really like Baal. Now, is that true? No, it's a trap. It's a lie. What is he doing? So here's what he does. He calls together all the prophets of Baal, all the priests of Baal, and all the worshipers of Baal. And he says, we're going to have a big Baal worshiping convention. It's going to be the Baal worshiping event of the century. Be there or be square. If you love Baal, this is the place for you. You better be there because all the cool people who worship Baal are going to be there. But it's actually a trap. It's a trap. Jehu is trying to get all the Baal worshippers together in one place at their main temple. And once he has them there, we read in verse 27 that Jehu executed the prophets of Baal, the priests of Baal, the worshipers of Baal, and he destroyed their temple. In fact, he didn't only destroy their temple, but it says there in verse 27 that he turned it into a latrine. And it says in verse 28, thus Jehu wiped out Baal from Israel. Now let that sink in. Jehu wiped out Baal from Israel. Isn't that incredible? Do you guys remember back in 1 Kings when we were studying that, when it looked like as if the worship of Yahweh, the true and living God, was going to be wiped out from Israel. When Elijah the prophet could not even think of or find another person who still loved the Lord and was true to the Lord in their heart. And now, look how far it's come. Now, by the efforts of Jehu, there's not a single temple, not a single prophet, not a single priest, not a single worshiper of Baal in all of Israel. This terrible religion that killed babies and encouraged people to shed their own blood has now been eradicated, from Israel. That's a good thing. Look at all that Jehu has done in such a short amount of time. He obeyed God completely, and he obeyed God energetically. In fact, look at what it says in verse 30. And the Lord said to Jehu, because you have done well in carrying out what is right in my eyes and have done to the house of Ahab, according to all that was in my heart, your sons of the fourth generation shall sit on the throne of Israel. So as he's overthrown this dynasty of Omri, now he and his family get to form a dynasty and they will reign for four generations. Listen, of all the kings that ever reigned in the northern kingdom of Israel, there was none Greater than Jehu. Jehu was by far the best king who ever reigned and ruled in the northern kingdom of Israel. Jehu was a radical. He was a radical person and he brought about radical change in Israel and in Judah. He got rid of the house of Ahab. He got rid of Jezebel. He got rid of the worship of Baal. It was a radical, sweeping change and he did it all very quickly because he was such a radical person. However, There is a big but attached to Jehu. Look at what it says in verse 29. It says, Jehu wiped out Baal from Israel, but Jehu did not turn aside from the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, that is, the golden calves that were in Bethel and Dan. In verse 31, it says this, Jehu did everything that God told him to do, but, it's another big but, But Jehu was not careful to walk in the law of the Lord, the God of Israel, with all his heart. Jehu is an example for us of how it is possible to do all the right things and yet do them for the wrong reason. Here at the end of Jehu's story, we come to find out that although Jehu did many great things for God, Jehu's heart did not belong to God. Look at what G. Campbell Morgan had to say about Jehu. How terrible a warning is the story of this man, that it is possible to be an instrument in the hand of God and yet never be in fellowship with him. The story of Jehu is the story of a man who did great things for God, and yet he did not love God with his heart, from his heart. How do we know that? Because whatever you worship, that is what you truly love. Whatever you worship, that is what you truly love. And it says that Jehu worshipped not the Lord, but he worshipped the golden calves which Jeroboam had set up. We read about this in 1 Kings. That when the, when the two kingdoms of Israel initially split, the first king of the northern kingdom, Jeroboam, he had created essentially a new religion, which was a hybrid of Judaism and paganism. And he set up two altars with golden calves in Bethel and Dan. And, and Jehu he destroyed the altars of Baal, but he didn't destroy the altars of Jeroboam. He left these altars up, and not only did he not destroy them, he actually worshiped at them. In other words, Jehu's heart did not belong to the Lord. Now, you might ask the question, if Jehu didn't obey God because he loved God, then what was it that motivated Jehu to do these things that God told him to do? If it wasn't because he loved God, then why did he do it? Well, well, there's several possible reasons why Jehu might have done these things other than loving God. Uh, Maybe it's because Jehu was passionate about justice. Maybe he was passionate about justice. He had seen the atrocities that Ahab and Jezebel had carried out. He had seen the atrocities that the prophets of Baal had carried out, the the killing of children, etc. And maybe he was passionate about bringing justice against evildoers. Or maybe Jehu was passionate because he was a patriot, a patriot for Israel, because he was passionate about Israel. But friends, being passionate about your country is not the same as being passionate about the Lord. Or maybe Jehu was passionate about his image. Remember what he said to Jehonadab. Hey, watch me. Let me show you how zealous I am. He cared very much what people thought about him. So maybe that's what motivated him to do these things with such zeal. He was passionate about his image and what people thought about him. Listen, the Bible tells us this in in Ephesians chapter four. It tells us that because of the effects of sin on us personally, our, our minds and our hearts are darkened. Our minds and our hearts are darkened. And as a result of that, even when we do the right things, we often do them for the wrong reasons. We often do the right things for the wrong reasons. Two of the biggest wrong reasons why we do the right things are these. Self-glorification and self-justification. Self-glorification and self-justification. Self-glorification means you do good things so that other people will notice and so they will be impressed with how awesome you are. That's self-glorification. Self-justification, though, means that you do good things in order to convince yourself and maybe even God that you truly are worthy of love and acceptance and blessing. But listen, self justification and self-glorification. They're both ways of saying, look at me. Look at how great I am. Let me show you how great I am. That's exactly what Jehu said, remember? Now you might say, well, Nick, what's wrong with that? Maybe I really am a great person. What's wrong with letting other people know what a great person I am? Here's the problem. Like Jehu, no matter how many things you do right, there will always be a but. There will always be a but. No matter how good you are, no matter how many things you do right, there will always be a but. Jehu did all the right things, but no matter how good of a person you are, there's always a but, and the but will kill you. But here's the thing even if the Bible didn't exist, like let's just say we take the Bible out of the equation. Here's the deal. None of us have succeeded in living up even to our own standards of what we believe or what we know is right and wrong. In other words, we've all done things, even if you don't even think about the Bible, we have all done things that we ourselves know are not right, that they're wrong. In other words, at the end of the day, all of us are just like Jehu. You've done a lot of things right, but. There are times, there are areas in your life where despite all the good things you've done, all the right things you've done, you have sinned, you have fallen short of God's will, you have fallen short of God's glory. And the question is this, what hope is there for a Jehu like me? What hope is there for a Jehu like you? And that brings us to the final part of our sentence today, which is this, it's possible to do the right things for the wrong reasons, But Jesus is able to bring about the radical change that we need. Jehu brought about radical change in Israel, but what he needed was an even more radical change. What he needed was a radical change to take place inside of him. Remember that the word radical, what does it mean? It means from the roots or pertaining to the heart. Jehu was a passionate person. And guys, I'll tell you this. I see a lot of passionate people right now. I see a lot of people who are very passionate. I see people who are passionate about politics, don't you? People who are very passionate about politics. I see people who are very passionate about the coronavirus and COVID-19 and all the rules surrounding masks and social distancing. They're passionate about it. I see people who are passionate about their hobbies and their careers. They're passionate about causes and social issues. But what our world needs more than anything else is an even more radical change. What we need is an even more radical change. We need a change that goes down to the very root, to the very core, to the very heart of who we are. The story of Jehu is very relevant for us today, where we're at today, because look at it. It's a complete overthrow of the government, right? Listen, here's what, here's what the story of Jehu tells us for us living today. It shows us this, that what we need is not just new leaders in our government. What we need is not just justice in these social evils. No, those things are important. Understand this. And God cares about them. I mean, think about this. This is a story about a guy who did what God wanted him to do by working in those areas. So God absolutely does care about these things. And yet, as important as those things are, even more important is that you and I need to experience a radical change. We need to be transformed at the root, at the core, in the heart of hearts. Listen, the, the problem of evil is this it isn't just that evil exists out there in society, the problem isn't just that evil exists out in the culture. The problem of evil isn't just social, it's personal. The problem of evil is that evil has gotten itself inside of us, and it is bound up in our very hearts. And it's for this reason that Jesus said that what we need more than anything else is that we need new hearts. We need that radical change, a transformation of who we are at the very roots. And the good news of the gospel is that you can receive that radical change. You can receive that new heart. You can be transformed and made into a new creation. In Ezekiel chapter 36, God foretold a time which was yet to come when He would give us a new heart and put a new spirit within us. He would remove the heart of stone and He would give us a heart of flesh. And the good news of the gospel is that in Jesus, that time has come. The message of the gospel is not that you need to try harder to be more passionate for God. You know what the message of the gospel is? The message of the gospel is that God is passionate about you. He passionately loves you. God so passionately loves you that Jesus was willing to leave heaven and come to earth. He traded a crown of glory for a crown of thorns. He traded a heavenly throne for dusty streets and a wooden cross so that he could save you and redeem you and make you his own. And the message of the gospel is not the message that you need to try harder to be passionate about God. No, rather, it is the message that God passionately loves you. And he has acted in history in order to provide forgiveness for your sins. And even beyond that, he wants to place his spirit inside of you and radically change you from the inside out. Jesus Christ came. He lived a perfect life. He died a sacrificial death on your behalf, in your place. On the cross, he took the judgment that you deserved so that you could receive the identity, the blessing, the name that only he deserved as a child of God. And he rose from the grave so that now you can have new life, now and forever. And in him, you can have a clean slate and a new identity. Your identity can be this. You are a forgiven, beloved child of God. And beyond that, he also places his spirit inside of you when you believe to do that work of transforming you at the very roots, at the very core, even transforming your most fundamental desires. How do you receive that radical change? Well, the way to receive that radical change, that change of identity, that change of destiny, that transformation in your heart and your mind is this. Rather than seeking to justify yourself, Rather than seeking to glorify yourself, you look to Jesus and what he did for you as your justification before God, and you seek to give all the glorification to him as a result. You trust in what he did for you, and you ask God to do that transforming work inside of you in your life by his spirit. You've been listening to a message from Whitefields Community Church in Northern Colorado. For more information and audio content, visit us at whitefieldschurch.com.